Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Becknall. Today's guest is Emma Gilchrist. She's the editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Narwhal. Now, The Narwhal, for those that don't know, is a team of investigative journalists that focus on Canada's natural world, and they write incredible stories about the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. We connected with Emma because the Narwhal and the Winnipeg Free Press are partnering to establish a new reporter here in Manitoba that will focus on climate reporting. It's a really cool connection, and I was honored to be able to speak with Emma today. So without further ado, my conversation with Emma Gilchrist, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Narwhal. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm joined via Zoom by a very special guest. We have Emma Gilchrist. She's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Narwhal, and Canada's foremost climate reporter. Reporting, zine, magazine. How, is that a good introduction? I'm not sure if that's accurate. <laughs> that works. Yeah. I, I always say that, um, yeah, the Narwhal is like Canada's foremost, you know, source of news on Canada's natural world. It is the best going right now. You guys are doing incredible work. There's so much great content coming out of the Narwhal, but maybe for our listeners who haven't heard of the Narwhal, just give me a breakdown of who you guys are, what, what your mandate is and, and what you've been doing for the last few years. Yeah. So the simplest way to describe the Narwhal is the Narwhal is like the environment section of the newspaper, except for you've probably never seen an environment section of the newspaper because there isn't one of those. Um, but that's really what we're doing is just reporting on the environment at like the center of everything that we do. We, we started about four years ago. Um, at that point, there was just two of us, me and my co-founder, Carol Linnett. Um, and we started with a, you know, really kind of crazy new model for, for journalism as a nonprofit and um, member funded. So we don't have a paywall. Uh, people just pay what they can. We have a free weekly newsletter um, that goes out to about 75,000 people now. Um, and so, yeah, that's how it, how it got started. And it's just really grown like, like crazy. So now by this spring, we're going to have 22 staff. Um, and yeah, it's all been a really interesting journey in this time when people say that, you know, journalism is dying or the business model for news is dead um, or that people don't, you know, care about big issues like climate change. We've just kind of experienced the, the total opposite of that and grown faster than we ever could have imagined. And we started out in BC, but we've expanded. Now we have a Prairies Bureau and um, an Ontario Bureau. And our goal within the next five years is to have bureaus in every part of Canada. Clearly there's an appetite for the work that you're doing. And there's so many great stories that really get to the human side of things. I think a lot of times, you know, this conversation can get bogged down by facts, figures, um, a lot of that sort of scientific mumbo jumbo. But um, how important is it to, to find the humanity in some of these climate stories and tell those stories and try to sort of just get people aware of what's happening uh, through a human lens as opposed to more of a scientific lens? Yeah, I mean, we that's like super foundational to what we do at the Narwhal. I think at the end of the day, humans connect with other humans um, and it's important for people to see themselves reflected in the stories. So one of the things about the narwhal that's maybe a little bit surprising is that you, you really see people of all stripes in the you know in the stories in the narwhal whether they might be ranchers oil and gas workers coal miners 
um, you know, indigenous people, people of color, like you just, you really see everybody because everybody's impacted by changes to the natural world. Um, I mean, we'll cover, for instance, like the, the salmon crisis on the West coast and we'll, you know, we'll have the voices of fishermen. Cause you know what, like fishermen are really impacted by the fact that, you know, salmon are being decimated through, you know, variety of factors. Um, and so, yeah, those human stories, I think are just so, so crucial. You can tell people facts and figures and numbers, you know, till kingdom come, but it doesn't set in for people. Um, we also really focus on like solutions and trying to find, um, you know, how can we get ourselves out of, of these, you know, kind of intractable challenges. So if you look at an issue like old growth blogging, and we report a lot on old growth blogging in BC, it's, you know, very controversial. Um, but then we'll try to take a step back and say like, okay, like where else in the world has, has dealt with similar challenges? What have they been able to do to get out of this? Um, you know, we've done that looking at salmon, at logging, at, you know, economic transitions, right? Like it's easy to kind of get the blinders on, I think, and, and feel like, you know, this is the, you know, the first time that anybody's had to change their economy, but it's not the first time anybody's had to change their economy. It's actually, we've gone through this many times, um, you know, over a couple of centuries now, and you can kind of look around for how this has played out before. And by kind of taking that step back and widening the lens, you can help step away from the kind of like intractable conflicts that are created by some of these debates. It seems like it would be a very, I'm, I tend to be, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist, but certainly a realist and definitely not an optimist. And this particular area of uh, conversation, is there any reason to be optimistic moving forward in the next 10 years when it comes to climate and, and how we're approaching things as a, as a country and, and just as a people? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Like the, one of the weird things about the narwhal maybe is that we report on like, you know, like the most depressing of subjects, but it, everybody says that we sort of do it with this like little bit of optimism, a little bit of effervescence, right? And in that sense, I think, you know, how do we do that? Well, I think because there, there is always like hope in, in solutions and there are lots of people actually the vast majority of Canadians are very concerned about the climate um, and what we're going to do to fix it. And I think there's more common ground than you might be led to think if you just kind of read the daily news headlines. And so for us, like we're kind of trying to zero in on that, on those optimistic parts, not in a rose tinted glasses kind of way, but in a like constructive, you know, how do we find solutions to these things kind of way. And like, when I look at how much the conversation in Canada has changed around climate in the last 10 years, even the last five years, it is immense. You know, like when the Narwhal launched four years ago, we were considered to be doing something like quite radical. Um, and now, you know, you have the Globe and Mail and CBC talking about how they're putting climate change coverage front and center. And, um, you know, we're partnering with all sorts of those traditional players. And I think the fact that the narwhal has become like incredibly mainstream in that sense, like it's, it's really part of, you know, the dominant conversation that's really hopeful. Like things are changing and sometimes it's, it's hard to see when it's right under your nose, but yeah, sure. You know, is it also probably not enough, not fast enough? Sure. But I just don't know that being pessimistic doesn't help us get where we need to go. Of course, of course. That's gr great advice to remember for sure. You're a 15 year veteran of the journalism game and you talked to, I wanted to, I want to sort of 
explore the new media versus old media and, and sort of the new school versus old school mentality. So maybe take me back even five years ago when, when the narwhal was just an idea or, or, or how, what was the sort of inception of it? And, and how did you think that it was going to be possible given the media landscape, given sort of, you know, 2018 when it, when it launched? So we're in the middle of the fake news chaos and all the craziness that, that comes from that. So take me back to when you first launched and what the media landscape was and why you thought that this model would work. Yeah, well, I'm actually gonna take you back 10 years just for a second. So about 10 years ago, I was working at the Calgary Herald as an environment reporter. And at that time, like every newspaper in the country had an environment reporter. And then over the next kind of five years, I watched like all of those positions be eliminated just as most beat reporting positions in general were eliminated because the traditional model for news is just really suffering and the bottom is falling out of it. And so that is really a lot of where the idea from the narwhal came from is like, being the environment bureau, being a centralized environment bureau for the country because that reporting just wasn't being done. And I think that's where a lot of like new media outlets have found success is because traditional media for a variety of reasons have kind of left areas and people and communities really underserved. And so, you know, new media outlets can pop up and serve those audiences. And so, yeah, I mean, five years ago when we were, you know, coming up with like the idea for the narwhal and the name and all that, we just saw like a, honestly, like a whole sea of opportunity because there was so little environment reporting happening. Like the Globe Mail didn't have an environment reporter almost like I could have listed them on one hand, the environment reporters in Canada. And so it was like really right for the taking. Um, the business model side of things was maybe a little bit harder. That was like, you know, we were going to have to <laughs> kind of make a miracle happen. Um, but I have always believed that, you know, if you, if you are providing a service to people um, and you can find a community that wants that, that they will pay for it. And that's proven to be true. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's a generational divide that now, now that, you know, our generation is kind of able to pay for things and, and subscribe to things and support things that that business model is able to thrive. Whereas maybe I don't, I don't, my, my partner, Stephanie always says like, don't say it's a generational divide because she, she just gets, she thinks it's too stereotypical and too like, you know, um, you know, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of both because so like I used to work in the nonprofit world for a while in my interlude between the Narwhal and um, the Calgary Herald. And you know, that like it's well known in the nonprofit world, like typical donors, they tend to be older, like people who mm -hmm. have expendable income, you know, they tend to be older. And um, so on the one hand, it's like you have that force happening on on say like our membership base. Um, but then we also our readership skews quite young. Like so, you know, we know that about 50% of our readers are are under the age of 45. And which I think kind of combats another generational stereotype that like young people aren't engaged or they aren't reading the news or they don't care or like those types of things. So I think it's, it's a bit of both, but like at the end of the day, you know, people, yeah, have to have some means to like voluntarily give money each month. That said, it's really, it's not a lot. And I think, I do think our generation is maybe, because now there's such that economy of like um, paying, yeah, like a small amount each month for, 
you know, Netflix and Spotify and New York times. And, you know, it's like people, it's just more of that economy of like, like optional digital payments to make up your own kind of entertainment ecosystem. And I think maybe that transition has made people more willing to pay five bucks a month to also get this newsletter that they like. Yeah. Very well said. For, for, for the average Canadian or person just in general, what, what uh, area of the climate, first of all, is climate crisis the right thing to call it? Like people, is that the right accurate? <laughs> there's thing? a big, there's a big debate about debate, that, yeah. but like, that's one of the, yes, that's a thing that you, that you can call. It. I mean, we have this debate at the Narwhal all the time. Cause like some, you know, real purists say like, you should only call it the climate crisis because it's a crisis and you have to call it a crisis. And then, you know, I sort of have questions about like, okay, but like, if you're speaking to audiences that, you know, once that language becomes kind of politicized or, or colored, and if that's is sending, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the whole debate about tar sands versus oil sands and mm-hmm. like, for me, you need to speak in the language of the audience you're trying to reach. And so that it depends, it depends is the answer. <laughs> yeah, that is, no, that is, that is a good and accurate answer for sure. This goes back, I had Paul Simon on the podcast last week, who is uh, going to be partnered with you through the Winnipeg Free Press because you're having a new uh, position partnered with the Narwhal. And we had a good debate, good discussion about sort of what words mean and how it's important to use the correct words, because a lot of times with the freedom convoy that's going on right now and all this craziness, the definition of freedom for one person is different than the definition of freedom for another. And the definition of climate is different and all these. So how did, how have you sort of taught your team or encouraged your team to not get bogged down or maybe focus more on definitions and, and proper, you know, attributions and stuff, or like how much time do you guys spend making sure the right words are being chosen in, in the right yeah. contexts. Yeah. I mean, I do think it really matters and, and like, you know, everywhere, every publication is probably going to have their own debate and maybe come up with a slightly different answer. And like, that's part of the beauty of a media landscape that has a little bit more diversity to it these days. But, you know, for us, like for, you know, there's the whole debate around what do you call indigenous people on their own land um, opposing something? Um, traditional media often calls those people protesters um, and other types of media ourselves included you know tend to call those people land defenders or uh, at least avoid um, calling indigenous people on their own land protesters and so like I do think that those language choices are are really important but I also think that um, sometimes uh, people can kind of lose sight of the goal, right? And so that's where ultimately I do think it's really important to keep your audience in mind. Um, and if a term has become like unnecessarily like polarizing or that it gives off a certain view, like, you know, like with tar sands, that, that word in Canada came to connote that you're like anti, mm-hmm. anti-oil sands and, 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 you know, that, to me, isn't like a great way to approach people in Alberta to talk about, you know, issues related to the oil sand, starting off with a word that feels pejorative isn't, isn't great. Just the same way that starting off by calling indigenous people protesters on their own land probably isn't a great starting point for them either. So there's lots to consider for sure. Yeah. And I feel like journalists are often the ones on the ground talking to the people establishing those relationships and really seeing what 
all sides are coming at it from. And at the end of the day, most people want the same thing. They want safety. They want, you know, protection from everything. They want their kids to do well. They want their communities to thrive. Um, what have you noticed in your reporting? Um, is there any trends that you've noticed talking to people on all sides of the arguments as far as like what Canadians are desiring when it comes to, um, you know, action on the climate? Yeah, I mean, I think probably one of the big things, and this is part of like the founding of the Narwhal and why we chose the, the name the Narwhal too, is that Canadians, like by and large, they, they love the natural world and they're very proud of the natural world that we have in Canada. I mean, just look at any Canadian tourism ad, you know, it's, it's world caliber, world caliber. It's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's mountains, it's canoeing, it's playing hockey on a nut door rink. It, that is a huge part of like what defines Canada. Like when people think of Canada around the world, the first thing they would say is wilderness, the outdoors, the natural world. And so when we were creating the narwhal, we, we wanted to choose kind of an iconic Canadian, you know, species of some kind or something that would kind of tap into that sense of shared values around the natural mm -hmm. world. Because despite the fact that we all have this sense of pride and love of the natural world, conversations about it can automatically become so polarized. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you, when you find common ground first with people, you'll be really surprised um, by how much commonality there is. And like for me, I grew up in an oil and gas town in Northern Alberta, and I am just continually like think back to conversations I have with people there who, you know, they work in fracking, they work in oil and gas. And yet, and, and they'll, they'll come in with ideas about who I am now um, when we talk and, and be defensive. But then once we get talking, they'll be like, you know what, our, our rivers are running dry and we really need you to look into like what these companies are doing with our water. And it's not black and white. I think that would be my takeaway from working on this beat for so long is that there's a huge amount of nuance and complexity. And I think that's really where the answers lie is in, is in embracing that. Embracing context. That's what I've been talking about with all my friends. It's like coming to conclusions based on a 140 character tweet or the headline of an article or anything is so counterproductive and incorrect. It's like context is literally everything. And I, and I feel like just being able to critically engage with the context of a story is so much more important than just the gist or the headline or the, or the lead or anything like that. Um, what are your thoughts on context in a 2022 oh, I mean, in the context just, of 2022? What's yeah, I mean, you're just fully teeing me up to talk. Like we always talk about this in our wall about like context rich, basically, and how what we do, we literally do it. And like part of our onboarding and training for new staff is we'll like look at a story in traditional media that's really devoid of context. And then we'll put it next to a story in the narwhal and be like, this is what makes a narwhal story. A narwhal story is that you don't just go like, oh, this report came out and it, it, it shrugged its shoulders at like why these fish have been dying for 30 years. Our reporting is like, we've been reporting on these coal mines, you know, and we know that they've been causing pollution in these rivers. And now this new report says that all the fish have died in those rivers and you actually connect the dots, right? And you help people make sense of the world. And I think that's really like what people are looking for is journalism that helps them make sense of the world. Um, I don't think people are looking for 
more they're looking for better like who needs more news who needs more news that doesn't give them context and doesn't help them understand the issues so we do you know we don't produce like a ton of content at the narwhal we produce you know probably five or six stories a week that's what we do like about a story a day um and it's really about that kind of quality over quantity that's exactly what i was about to say for for the average person what would you suggest people sort of focus their attention on like what area of the climate situation do you think isn't getting enough eyeballs on it that you think the average Canadian should know about and deserves to know about or or anything like yeah I think I would choose something that's like close to home for you that you Mm. sort of like innately care about and go for that like you know if you live on Vancouver Island it might be salmon If you live in Winnipeg, it might be drought, it might be agriculture, you know, it might be something different, or it might be, you know, the destruction of wetlands. Um, But anywhere that you live, there's, I think, a different kind of intersection, you know, it might be urban development that's, you know, destroying natural assets and in your community. And so like, there's various points where that'll kind of touch you. But yeah, I think there's so much like, we tend to not report a lot on like, just like kind of the big bubble of like climate, we Mm -hmm. make it about all those local issues. So, you know, we report a ton about um, mining and oil and gas and forestry and um, endangered species. Um, and we also report a ton on the solutions, like the potential for new protected areas and indigenous led protection and those types of things. So, yeah, I think there's just so many different ends to the kind of environment story that if you pick something that's close to you, it can be a little bit less overwhelming. Yeah. And, and a little more personal and just a little more relatable because you probably know an uncle or so, or whoever has a, you know, cattle farm back home. I'm from Russell, Manitoba, which is a small town. So know a lot of like dairy farmers and yeah. So that's, that's a great, great piece of advice. What do you think? So the narwhal, I would consider, I I know you don't like this term, but mainstream, you know, like you guys are the forefront for me as far as like mainstream climate reporting, but I'm sure four or five years ago, you guys were sort of the punk rock, you know, quietly doing your thing. What's that sort of, has, have your interview subjects or your team's interview subjects sort of responded differently based on now who's calling? Because I always tell the story when I was in university or when I was in college as a journalist, I would call people up and beg for an interview. And then you know, once in a while you'd get a a call back. Whereas now that I work for the Winnipeg foundation, it's like, Oh, sure. What time can I, you know, what can, what, what, what time can I join you? Have you noticed a shift in sort of perspective from your, um, subjects based on your now, like incredibly popular and incredibly successful at the normal? Yeah, we're definitely getting like better and better access to, to people, um, which is, which is great. Yeah. So just, you know, people have generally been pretty good about returning our calls, but just like getting better access, you know, to people in government, for instance, and like some Mm -hmm. of the bigger names to sit down. um, That's, it's definitely changed and is like continuing to change. And I think, you know, we have to continue to prove that too, by making a point of fairly portraying, you know, the lives of people who work in the resource sector, for instance, and um, because we really need those perspectives to to make those like 
you know, nuanced context rich stories that we're talking about. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's very astute of you to note that like that, that would have changed over the last few years. And it, it definitely, definitely has. Have you noticed a change in just sort of the general population's uh, opinion of the big J journalism, as far as like comments on your articles or, you know, on your, on your tweets and stuff, like has the perspective shifted in that way at all, or that you've noticed? I don't know that it's changed so much in that way. I mean, I know there's some really interesting slash bizarre conversations about that happening in Canada, like right Mm -hmm. now where, (laughs) you know, people are, there's certain people who are kind of jumping on a on a bandwagon so to speak around like just kind of smearing the idea of journalism and journalists and um you know so there's always that to contend with but I would say I don't know the narwhal exists in this this kind of interesting middle zone right where I think you know our our entire success is built upon the fact that people who read us feel they can trust us um right and Part of that is because like, we're not beholden to the interests that maybe traditional journalism was. So we don't sell any advertising. Um, you know, we don't have any shareholders. We're, we're a nonprofit. So it's like a, just a totally different business model. And so I think that helps us sort of um, have like the holy grail of credibility mm-hmm. with, with certain people. Um, but then at the same time, yeah, like people can get so far down that rabbit hole and you know this is where yeah I take issue with the way people kind of characterize like mainstream media versus whatever I'm like I don't even know what that word means anymore because our journalistic ethics at the narwhal are are in line with what the Canadian Association of Journalists you know recommend your journalistic ethics should be and so I think, I think some people are just maybe a little bit confused right now. Def- definitely. <laughs> How can you not be with just a fire hose of propaganda from all sex directions coming at us? Yeah. Is there a story from the past four, not necessarily that you've worked on, but just maybe your team has worked on that you really thought like, this is why I, we launched this project. And this is this kind of storytelling that I want to do. And this is the kind of impact that I want to make that pops the, at the top of your mm-hmm. mind. Like, yeah, I mean, there have been so many, you know, there's different types of stories, but like probably the most classic one for us would be, we have been reporting just like doggedly on this hydroelectric project in Northeastern BC called the Site C Dam. Um, and our reporter, Sarah Cox, who, who ended up writing a book on that project as well, has just broken like such huge stories. And um, about a year ago, I guess, she, she broke a story um, about how the BC government like knew that the project was over budget and behind schedule like a year before it admitted it publicly. And that story of her is based on like just the biggest FOI battle, like to get these freedom of information documents. She had had to like go through a complaint process and all this stuff. And she finally got this like stack of documents that revealed something that, you know, is really going to have, you know, a big impact over kind of who knew what and when. Um, and that story ended up winning her like a world press freedom award, um, and the Canadian journalism foundation award last year. So that I think just what we've done to bring to light, what has actually happened around the site C hydro dam is, is, is why we exist. And it's kind of the big story that we got started on. 
Beautiful. I love to hear it. So let's talk just briefly about the partnership with the Winnipeg Free Press. There's going to be one reporter that you guys are kind of, you know, working with and who's going to be under the Narwhal banner and the Free Press banner. What are your hopes for that person's uh, year ahead? Like, what, what are you hoping that they, they, they can achieve? What kind of stories are you hoping that they can tell? And, and what are your plans and hopes and aspirations for that particular yeah. partnership? Well, it's really exciting because so far the Narwhal hasn't really covered a lot in Manitoba. And part of the way that this position came about is because we kept getting pitches from readers, like readers kept reaching out to us, wanting us to cover issues that are happening in Manitoba. And, you know, I kind of say, sorry, we don't have any capacity (laughs) to cover things in Manitoba. And so I really hope for this new reporter to, you know, basically get to you know, get really integrated with what's going on on the ground in Manitoba, what the big issues are, and to get to tell those really like human rich, complicated stories about, you know, what sort of the front lines of climate change look like there. And I mean, I know there could be lots of interesting stories about the agriculture industry. There's lots of, you know, stuff about Lake Winnipeg and the health or not the lack of health of Lake Winnipeg. (laughs) Um, There's, you know, huge indigenous protected areas in the North. Um, So, yeah, I just feel like it's a really ripe um, kind of, you know, ground for, of, of stories that haven't, haven't been told a lot. I wanted to ask one more thing before we go to the final section, but I it completely drawing a blank. I was up all night, like just pe- our, our puppy was like, well, uh. the one year old and he would just like hyperventilating all night unless oh. some, unless someone was petting him. So I was just kind of like laying on the you're couch. Just like, like, oh my you're God. Okay. You're okay. Well, you have been super on it. All <laughs> things considered. Well, Steph what made- were you and Paul talking about? What was the last thing that we were just talking about? Um, we were asking about like what our Manitoba reporter was going to do. Right. What the- Right, right. Um, did that trigger? Did that remind you of something that Paul said? Kind of. But no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it comes back to me, I'll, we'll we'll just go to the uh, next section. That's fine. Okay. So, so Emma, at the end of our time together, we do a little section called "Just Because," which is the same seven questions, all about the causes people care about and the effect that it's had on their lives. You okay to go through those seven with us? Sure. Okay. Question number one: What is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? I remember being kind of like a feminist before I knew what that work meant and just always asking like why I couldn't do the things that the boys were doing and always being like the only girl playing soccer at recess. So that I guess was my first cause. Beautiful. Is it, and is, is that still something you're passionate about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. So something I'm passionate about for sure. And I'm passionate about playing soccer with the boys still as well. Nice. Cool. <laughs> uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Mm. I think I'd create a pot of just like startup funds so that other people could start outlets like the Narwhal. Mm. You think that there, there's definitely a appetite for storytelling. Oh, that's, that's what my question was before. Okay. So we, he, Paul basically said like journalism shouldn't be done on zoom and can't be done like with all these restrictions and stuff. How have you and your team found um, the pandemic and being able to tell stories, interview people, connect with others? I'm sure there's some positives and some negatives, but what is, what is the pandemic sort of forced you or taught you or, or, you know, forced you to rely on technology in in some ways as far as how you've been able to do your job? 
Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not the same. I've heard from, you know, a lot of our reporters that it's just, you can't tell the same caliber of story without going out into the field and, and being there. That said, I don't know. I feel like we've been able to do like pretty good work despite that. And we're fortunate than our well in the sense that we already had a fully remote workplace. Um, and we were kind of born that way, you know, so it hasn't been a big weird transition and we never had a big office where everybody worked and, being able to just like have like one reporter in Manitoba and three people in Ottawa and Ontario and like just be able to hire honestly to be able to hire people based on their skill set not necessarily the exact place that they live mm. is like I think a major um, bonus for us. Yeah, I think that I'm hoping and thinking that once people realize, like it's kind of shifted everything. Like you don't need to be, you don't need to live in the city where you work any right. You don't need to. Mm. And, and I think not a lot of people have really realized that yet as far as like planning your life is concerned. So I'm really curious how it's going to sort of play out in the next totally. couple of years. But it's like allowed us, you know, as you know, there's all this talk about the great resignation going on as companies have expected people to go back to offices. And some of those companies have been traditional journalism companies. And like it, it's, it's probably helping us assemble. We've been able to assemble quite a team of superstars, if I do say so myself. Um and part of that is because we have like a flexible workplace where it's like, you want to live in Montreal? Cool. You want to live in Fernie sometimes? Cool. Like that's just, it's not, it's not a big deal to us. Like we think people are intrinsically motivated to do the work and they don't need to sit in like an office in Toronto to do it. I love it. That's beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so question three, back to the just because section, uh, what's the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest stigma about your work and about the causes that you're supporting? Yeah, I think for us, the biggest stigma is, is probably just like people have a hard time understanding how we can report on the environment all the time, but not be activists, like how we can still be credible journalists. And that doesn't make us like activists for the cause. Mm. Um, and so just kind of explaining that line of, you know, no, it's, it's just like, you know, business reporters report on business and they, you know, and environment reporters report on environment and yeah, our reporters become experts in the issue and they're less likely to buy like government spin and corporate spin. So they get better at, at, at you know, kind of untangling that stuff. But um, we are still very much journalists and, and fairness is, you know, our top priority. Beautiful. Love it. Awesome. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally, that you can share with us? Hmm. I would say um, in, in November, we, we faced quite a situation where one of our photographers was arrested um, and detained for three nights uh, while, yeah, while photographing um, RCMP arrests of Indigenous land defenders. Um, and the way that we reacted to that, I think, mm. and the support that we received from that was a big win. Um, so yeah, you know, we received, you know, tons of donations from our readers to support her fighting the, the legal battle, um, you know, support from like all of Canada's news organizations basically lined up to support her that she was, the charges were ultimately dropped. Um, and we're still, reviewing our legal options for ensuring that that kind of thing never happens again. Yeah, no kidding. Has your, has, has all the support that the Narwhal has gained over the last four years 
really like what what has that done to your to your psyche and to your you know motivation as far as like your mission in in life i think it's only just like more motivating um when yeah, I just find it hugely motivating. We have this channel on our on our Slack workspace called Good Vibes. Um, and we share like all of the donor comments that we get there. So mm. anytime somebody signs up to become a member of the Narwhal, there's like little box they fill in about why they did it. And I just basically live for those um, because it just really takes you back to the, the point of the whole thing. And there can be lots of hard parts of running a quickly growing, you know, news business. No um, but that just the fact that we're like really serving people and it's really valuable um, is just a great reminder about why we're doing it. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, question five, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Um, I think it's, it's more of like one of those pithy quotes and it's um, comparison is the death of joy. I just listened to an incredible podcast. Uh, it's called Armchair Expert, and they had Brene Brown on, and they were talking about comparison, like how to compare yourself with others, and like there's upward comparison and downward comparison, and none of it is good. Basically, was the conclusion. So I love that quote. Can you say it again? Yeah. Uh, comparison is the death of joy. And big Brene Brown fat, fan. I'm gonna go listen to that podcast now because I it just was, eat up anything that she does. It was and tremendous. It's just like you know, you just gotta do, you just gotta do you. And I think for the narwhal, like we've succeeded because we've kind of just authentically done our own thing. We're not trying to be punk rock. We're not trying to be anything really. We're just trying to do a good job of what we set out to do, and that's, that's beautiful. it. Beautiful. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's a good. They they talk about the definitions of words too. And like more so in the context of like your emotional state and like different emo people are just happy, sad, angry, but there's actually so many more layers of you're going to love it. It's good. Yeah. I'm yes. Jack. Excited <laughs> for that one. <laughs> Question six, what advice would you give your 10 year old self? If you could talk to her right now. That is such a good question. You are exactly who you're supposed to be and you're going to make it. That's such a common theme. Like everyone is just, just stay the course, you know, it's so there's so mm -hmm. doubt is just this intrinsic thing in youth, I think, or at least it was for me. And if you could find a way to just erase that doubt, you could create superheroes. And yeah, that's a great. Well, it's just wild, especially because I, I don't know if everybody experiences this, but for me, like now, when I look back on who I was at like every age, you realize like, oh, like I'm exactly my like 10 year old self or whatever, you know, I was just always inquisitive, curious, like a little bit nerdy and like marching to the beat of my own drummer. Love it. And Beautiful. you just have no idea where that's going to go when you're 10 years old. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> just embrace it. Just embrace yourself, yeah. embrace the weirdness and have fun. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, totally. uh, Emma, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're incredibly busy. Like you no worries. Me, this was super fun. I appreciate it. The last question is the hardest one. Um, question seven is what do you want to be remembered for? Oh yeah, that is, that's, that, that is a hard one. I would say for being understanding, um, like for just for being, you know, someone that you can talk to about anything and yeah, whether just about anything, right. Just, 
I think that's one of the things that like adversity can bring us in life, like experiencing lots of different things. It can bring us like the compassion to be there for other people. Beautifully said, eloquent, incredible. Emma, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. The narwhal.ca, the narwhal.ca, yeah. Yeah. Narwhal.ca for all the great stories. There's a new, there's a new post every day. Uh, go there, become a member support. It's the best journalism going right now. Uh, Emma Gilchrist is the founder, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Narwhal. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Emma, uh, Emma Gilchrist, editor-in-chief and co-founder of the Narwhal. As you can tell from listening to the conversation, she is brilliant. And, uh, you know, just having the foresight to launch something like the Narwhal, even in 2018, is really incredible. Um, it was an honor to have her on the, on the podcast. And again, for if you want to learn more about what the, what the Narwhal is doing, go to thenarwhal.ca. That's T-H-E-N-A-R-W-H-A-L.ca. And, you know, become a subscriber if you can, because... I really, truly believe that uh, her and her team are doing some of the most important journalistic work in the country and in the world, quite frankly, and uh, they deserve all the success they've gotten, and I wish them even more success in the future. If you'd like to hear more stories from The Cause and Effect and hear more episodes, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Uh, if you want each episode delivered right to your phone or to your computer, subscribing is the best way to do so. So visit becauseandeffect.org or search Because and Effect wherever you get your podcasts. All music on this show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music by searching Trenton Burton on Spotify. Because and Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about what the foundation is up to, visit WPGFDN.org or search at WPGFDN on all social media platforms, including our newly established TikTok account. So at WPGFDN for all your Winnipeg Foundation news. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for Because and Effect. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking your time to listen to this podcast. There's literally a million podcasts you could be listening to. So um, it's uh, not lost on me how important and how special it is that you've uh, chosen to listen to this one. So thank you. Uh, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. And remember, the earth is what we all have in common. Let's take care of her. Bye-bye.